When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The reality is that you can learn how to lose your temper with your kids a whole lot less often. And I'm living proof of that. I mean, my children will tell you that I still yell at them sometimes, and that's true. But it happens a whole lot less often in my house than it used to. And when I still lose it with them, it's less intense than it was. It doesn't last as long, and we can all recover more quickly. That was Dr. Carla Nomberg, and you're listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoengren, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T-desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We've talked a lot about sleep on the podcast, and as mental health professionals, we know that having quality sleep is really important to mood and mental health, and that's why we are excited to pair up with Monta Sleep. They offer innovative sleep masks and other accessories to help you sleep better. I am a dedicated sleep mask wearer. My sleep mask is a lifesaver when my husband's up late reading or on these bright summer mornings when I want to sleep in. And not only does a sleep mask provide me with the dark environment I need for a deeper sleep, I have become classically conditioned to it. Getting out my sleep mask is a cue for bedtime. And like Pavlov's dogs, as soon as I put that thing on, my body remembers that it's time for bed. Well, I'm newer to sleep masks and I've never used one before until I tried this one. So I was really excited to try it out and see what the hype was all about. And the Monta mask is really light and comfortable. And before I tried it, I don't think I realized how much the light in my bedroom was waking me up in the morning. So now I feel a lot more refreshed when I wake up. So here's what you can expect with Monta sleep masks. There are six different versions to choose from. They all offer 100% blackout for a deeper sleep, are infinitely adjustable for custom fit. They're soft, breathable, have zero pressure on your eyelids or eyelashes, and are made with durable snag-free materials. You can choose from the original sleep mask or a slim sleep mask with barely their feel. You can also go deluxe with a cool mask to soothe your eyes and sinuses, a warm mask with natural steam, a lavender aroma mask to target your scent vents or a weighted mask. So check them out at montasleep.com. Join their social media at at nap with Monta and at Monta Sleep and get 10% off by entering the coupon code off the clock.
Be sure to check out Praxis Continuing Education for their online trainings. Just go to the sponsors page of offtheclockpsych.com to link to Praxis, and there you'll find a discount code you can use for registration on any live training events. So check it out. We're also affiliates with Dr. Rick Hansen's online neurodharma program and his Foundations of Wellbeing programs, and you can find out more about them at our website, offtheclockpsych.com, where you'll get a $40 discount. Debbie and I are here to introduce a interview that I did with Dr. Carla Nomberg on her book, How to Stop Losing Your Bleep with Your Kids, A Practical Guide to Becoming a Calmer, Happier Parent. So this episode comes at a really good time because we're all stuck indoors in this pressure cooker of the quarantine. And Debbie, you and I have been talking about the necessity of an episode on this topic. Yeah, this is a popular demand episode with our listeners because we've had requests for people to talk about this. And I had a dear friend who I shall not name who reached out and said, can you do an episode about how to not be so angry with my kids all the time? Because it is, it's hard. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of moments as a parent where it's very hard to keep your own anger in check. Absolutely. Yeah, it was very funny. As I was preparing for this interview and reading the book, I just had all these conversations with friends, with patients, and with colleagues who were all talking about this dilemma of feeling like their fuse was shorter. And she presents this really, I think, accessible model that incorporates the the biology that we all have and, and the sort of social environmental factors that we all encounter. And basically, she pictures us as individuals that have a whole bunch of red buttons. And there are certain conditions where the buttons get brighter and more easily pushable. And what do kids do when they see bright, easily pushable buttons? They want to stick their fingers in those buttons and push as hard and often as they can. And I think, you know, by understanding our own wiring and what makes our buttons excessively pushable, we can manage our tempers more effectively. But Debbie, you and I were talking about what each of our buttons are, and I'm curious if you could share what some of your um, risks for having your buttons become more pushable might be. Yeah, I think, you know, we're not getting out and about as much as usual with the pandemic, but we are, you know, going for walks and other things, you know, drive-by birthday parties. But when I try to get my kids out the door, and and typically this happens when we are late to get to school or something like that, they just won't listen to me, right? So I'll say, hey, get your shoes on, get out the door. And they just, it's like I'm, they can't even hear me. And so I think in those moments, I'm a little bit stressed and frantic trying to get somewhere. And when they aren't listening and they're just pretending like nothing's going on, I can really easily get my buttons pushed and get pretty irritated with them. I have to say it's not my finest moment usually as a parent. Yeah. How about you? It happens to all of us. I I have so many. <laughs> I share a couple of them in the episode, but um, I'll share one more, which is one of the things that drives me absolutely bananas is when I have given my kids a treat and then they ask for, it's sort of like they got something and so they're going to see if they can get something else. Oh and yeah. It just annoys me. I just want them to be grateful and say thank you and then move along. Um, and so that, that is when I turn into gen- from generous mommy into nasty, irritable mommy. And like you're saying, it's not my finest hour. And, and I think thinking about the strategies that Carla Nomberg um, suggests has actually been really helpful. So we hope that you enjoy this episode, um, that it helps you keep your parenting mind a little cooler and calmer and closer to how you value parenting. I'm here today with Carla Nomberg, who's a speaker, clinical social worker, mother, and author of three parenting books, including the one that we are going to be talking about today called How to Stop Losing Your Bleep with Your Kids, A Practical Guide to Becoming a Calmer, Happier Parent. Her previous books are Ready, Set, Breathe and Parenting in the Present Moment, and her work has also been published in outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and Mindful Magazine. We're excited today to get to pick her brain on how not to lose our minds at our kids in general, and particularly while we are still stuck under lockdown with them during a pandemic. Welcome, Carla. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I loved your book. I was just telling you before we started the recording because it is kind, compassionate, super relatable, incredibly irreverent, and somehow also still offers evidence-based ideas for what to do about a common problem, one that you admit in this book to struggling with and that I too will readily admit to struggling with because most parents do. 
parenting is one of the hardest jobs in the world. And so let's begin at the beginning. What are the basic truths about parents losing their minds with their kids that you want everybody to know? Right. So um, I talk about this right at the beginning of the book. I call it six truths about parental beep loss. And for potential readers, please know there is some spicy language in this book. So prepare yourself. Um, It's salty, but but so fun. Yeah, salty. Um, The first thing I say is that parenting is hard. And this sounds really obvious, but I think it's a reminder we all need because I think in this day and age, especially because of social media and advice, you know, advice columns and all of the constant advice coming at us, which I think is, you know, we're sitting here giving people advice, but whatever. Yeah. It's completely different with us. Um, it's totally different. Our advice totally is solid. <laughs> but I think the underlying, the, in, the underlying message can feel like um, that parenting should be easy. And that if it's not easy, we're doing it wrong. And that's just baloney, quite honestly. Parenting is hard. It's hard for all of us. Now, I will say it's easier for some people and harder for others, depending on a whole lot of things. But at the end of the day, it's hard for everyone. And just because it's hard, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. And so I just want to remind parents of that. Um, The second truth is that every parent loses their temper sometimes. We all do. And I have parenting friends that I've never seen them lose their temper. And it's really hard for me to imagine them losing their temper. For the record, yell, I am not one of those people. (laughs) It's it's probably pretty easy to imagine me losing my temper with my kids. I just have to interject here because I was... um I was talking about losing my temper with my kids and I, I have this next door neighbor who's wonderful. She's such a calm, amazing, like serene mom. And I said, I bet she never loses her temper. And my son, my oldest son, who's 10, said to me, yeah, but she might think you don't because you usually do it when the door is closed. And I was like, good point. Good point, good point. son. <laughs> So we call that the air conditioning effect because before air conditioning was invented, everybody's windows were open and you could hear what was going on in their houses. And now that we have air conditioners and, you know, all the things, we can close our windows and nobody hears it. So your son is very wise. Um, Point number three that, you know, no matter what you may think, you probably haven't broken or traumatized your kids. And I can't tell you how many friends I have who you know, their parents will say, oh, I feel so bad. I yelled at you so much when you were little and the kids totally don't remember it. Now, I can't promise that that's the case in anyone's home or family. But, you know, just because we lose our temper with our kids, it doesn't mean we've totally traumatized or ruined them. Having said that, this is the next truth. It's still a bummer. Like we don't want to explode at our children, right? It's exhausting and stressful and causes, you know, stress in the relationship with the family. And it's just not how we want to use our precious time and energy. Um, A really important truth that I want every parent to hear is that this is not a matter of willpower. This is not about, are you strong enough to decide not to lose it with your children and then just not lose it? That's not how it works. And my favorite story about that is I have a friend who has four children, including two twins, and they're all pretty close together and she's amazing. But we were on the phone many years ago and she was like, you know, I just decided to stop yelling at my kids. And I did. I just stopped. And I remember thinking, I don't understand that. Like, are we on the same planet? Are you a human? How do you decide just to stop? Because I've decided like 80 million times to stop and I haven't been able to stop. And she's like, I don't know. I just stopped. And I was like, so fast forward a few years and she comes to my book talk for this book. And I reminded her of this story and she looked at me and she's like, I don't know why I told you that. It's not true. I never stopped yelling. I was like, oh, I love you. Thank you. This makes so much more sense. So it's really not a matter of willpower. And then the last sort of truth or reality is that you can learn how to lose your temper with your kids a whole lot less often. And I'm living proof of that. I mean, my children will tell you that I still yell at them sometimes, and that's true. But it happens a whole lot less often in my house than it used to. And when I still lose it with them, Um, it's less intense than it was. It doesn't last as long and we can all recover more quickly. Yeah. So that last point reminded me of the interview that I did with Rebecca Schrag Hirschberg on toddler tantrums, where we talked about the goal not being to stop our kids from having tantrums, but rather to reduce their intensity and their frequency and to help ourselves tolerate them more skillfully. And I think that you're kind of getting at the same point, which is like, we all have a human biology that's going to sort of freak out once in a while. And our goal is not to undo our biology, but rather to manage it, to respond to it and to, you know, learn how to soothe it more often and more skillfully. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I actually, speaking of biology, let's sort of transition to talking about why we lose our tempers. Because I actually, I love the metaphor that you use throughout this book of the buttons. I think it's a really um, easily understandable and and super like applicable. Like you can you can sort of use it on a day to day basis in figuring out how to manage your own temper. So I wonder if you could both talk about the neurobiology behind it and then sort of how you use this metaphor to sort of guide people through their own responses. Absolutely. So in the book, I talk a lot about triggers and buttons. And I define a trigger as anything that makes it more likely that you're going to lose your temper with your kids. So that's just what I use in this book. And the way I think about it is that when we are triggered, our buttons, and I really do literally imagine, I mean, this isn't obviously real, but it's how I imagine it. I imagine that we're covered in all these buttons and that when we are triggered, the buttons get really big and bright and glowy and super sensitive. And as anybody who's ever been in an elevator with a kid knows, what do kids do when they see buttons? They push them, right? And it doesn't mean your kid's a little psychopath. It doesn't mean your kid hates you. This is just the way our kids are wired. They push buttons because they are, you know, biologically programmed to get our attention. Like we are literally the reason they're alive and we keep them safe. We feed them all the things. And so they want our attention. They push our buttons because they're immature. They push our buttons because they're triggered when they're tired or angry or anxious or hungry. Um, They push buttons for, they push our buttons because that's just what they do. Right. And so, cause they don't know any better, literally. Um, and so I think it's really useful to remember the neurobiology behind what makes us triggered and what, why these buttons get so big and super pushable. And, you know, when we face a threat, we get, we go into what we call fight or flight mode. Right. And this is a very neurological response. That's a very physical response that our heart rate speeds up, our muscles tense, our pupils dilate, we start breathing faster. All these things happen in our body to prepare us to either fight whatever the threat is or to run away from it. And this response developed what millennia ago when most of the threats we faced were like, I don't know, saber tooth tigers. I may be completely off about when we developed and when a saber tooth tiger lived. I don't <laughs> Sometime know. Sometime in humankind history. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and so we have a very physical response to what used to be a physical threat. But now I like to think of it as the fight, flight, freeze, or freak out response. Um, and we are still having this very physical response, but most of what we face and we should talk about the global pandemic thing in a minute, but in general, most of what we face is not a physical threat. Most of us face threats that are financial, emotional, interpersonal, psychological, um, those sorts of things, but our bodies still have this emotional uh, response. Sorry, our bodies still have a physical response to a non-physical threat. So we get all triggered up, ready to lose it, but then we, we can't really run away from our kids, right? We're not going to flee them generally, although I have been known to lock myself in the bathroom from time to time. We're generally not going to fight our kids. Some of us do freeze up, especially folks with a trauma history that may be more likely to happen. But what a lot of us do is freak out. We lose it. And it's because we have this tension and energy in our body. We're all lit up like a Christmas tree with our buttons all huge and bright and glowing. And then our kid comes along and pushes us, pushes the button. It sends us over the edge and we lose our tempers. So The reason I share this story is because I really want parents to start thinking about what's happening in their body as a very normal and typical human reaction, even if it doesn't feel very good. And so your work is at least in part to help parents figure out how to make less pushable those those red buttons. And one thing that you really clarify is that kids are not triggers, they are button pushers. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about why that distinction is important. Yeah. So I think a lot of parenting advice out there focuses, even if it doesn't mean to, it sort of focuses on the child as a trigger. And so the the advice there is you need to get your child to behave better, to be more cooperative and calmer and, you know, whatever it is so that they won't trigger you. And That's kind of a nice idea, I guess, but I've never found it to work, and I don't think it's very realistic. Look, I I am a big fan of setting boundaries with children and maintaining appropriate expectations and teaching them how to be functional, functional members of society, but I think the reason we do that is so that 
they will grow up to be able to function in society and treat other people with kindness and behave appropriately. It's not so that they won't trigger us, right? Because we, you know, our brain, if you think about our brain, um, brain development is a huge part of this picture. And the part of our brain that can keep us calm, that can manage our emotions, that can plan ahead, that can make skillful decisions is our prefrontal cortex right behind our forehead. And we as adults have that. Our kids literally don't have that yet. And I think the latest research is that most people don't fully develop their prefrontal cortex until their early 20s, which is why we still see even college students making epically stupid decisions. And so to expect a child to behave well enough so that we don't get triggered, I think is an unreasonable expectation. And again, I'm not saying we let them go all feral in the house. We still continue to set limits and engage with them and discipline in the way that makes sense, but we don't do it so that we stay calm. So I think of a child as a button pusher, and it is our job as the adult in the relationship to take care of our buttons so that they are less pushable. Yeah. I love this quote from your book that I just need to share, which is, do you really want to hinge your sanity on the behavior of someone who licks walls and melts down over the shape of a piece of toast? Yeah, I didn't think so, <laughs> which I think is so true, right? Like our, we, we can try to get our kids to behave better, and we should, as you're saying, um, but developmentally, we need to expect that they're going to do things that are, to an adult, unreasonable and behave in ways that are, you know, borderline psychotic, <laughs> but, you know, that it's really up to us to sort of manage our responses, you know, as we teach them. That's right. So you sort of have this multi-pronged approach to how to stop losing our bleep with our kids. And one of the main areas that you really talk through um, in a really helpful way is practices that you can use to sort of dim your dim the brightness of your buttons to make them less pushable by those grubby little fingers that we live with. And, you know, part of this too is the context that we live in. So maybe we can actually back up a moment and talk a little bit about this pandemic. I mean, we're talking about our neurobiology responding to threats to our survival, to our system. And we're living through this crazy, you know, unprecedented time where we really actually are concerned about our survival. And so I think it makes sense to sort of think about that as making our buttons a lot more likely to be lit up because our systems are literally preparing and, and acting as if, because this is our re- reality, that we're under threat. And so I wonder what suggestions you have for people in just managing that level of at this point, it's kind of a chronic stressor. It's day to day. And it is sort of a context that we're living within. And we're living in it with that threat while stuck in a house with our children. That's right. So um, when I was writing the book, I came up with what I titled a ridiculously long list of potential triggers. And it goes through all these triggers from all different parts of our lives, ranging from like basic personal needs like hunger or lack of sleep to stress and overwhelm, social media stress, financial stress, relationship, lifestyle, life cycle milestones. I have like pages and pages of this and it's not meant to overwhelm readers. It was really meant to sort of hopefully raise their awareness about, gosh, you may be really triggered and not realizing it. So this list was so long that my editor was like, this is boring. We have to put it in the back of the book as an appendix. And she was right. Oh, Um, that's why it's back here. That's funny. Yeah, that's why she's like, it's too boring for the middle of the book. Um, But one thing I didn't actually put on the list was global pandemic, right? I missed that one. I missed that one. What was I thinking? Um, Second edition, you can add it in. (laughs) I know, seriously. But you're exactly right, Yale. Look, when I usually give these talks, I talk about the idea that we're having this physical response to what is generally not a physical threat. And in this case, it absolutely is a physical threat. So it's a situation that none of us have lived through before. Um, And in addition to this fear, this very real fear that we might get sick or our loved ones might get sick, um, many of our coping skills and supports have literally disappeared overnight. Gone. So Gone. Poof. Done. So for folks who really rely on that time away from their children to recharge, and I am one of them, and there's no shame in this. If you are a yeah, person- who's I'm one like, of them too. I'm one yeah, of them. Too. If you, you know, relied on that time when your children were in daycare, preschool, school, wherever- so With grandparents, could, at a play date. Anybody, I mean, just none, away none from you. Feasible, anyway, yeah. 
away, yeah. go away. Just and not in the same room. <laughs> not with me. So that's suddenly gone, right? And many of us are dealing with financial stress. People are being laid off. Their wages are being cut. They're being furloughed. Lots of people are turning to the news more than they should. And guess what? The news is bad and it's super triggering. And then I'm sure all of us have at least one friend in our social media feeds who have like risen to this crazy challenge and been like, oh, today we studied calculus and we made wood carvings. And then the kids made me homemade sushi because I taught them. And now they've got them on Zoom with their grandfather who's teaching them, you know, how to recognize the different parts of a cell. And I'm like, um, we went to the we had PJ rain. day. So th- the point is that we're all being triggered in a million different ways. And some of them are very real and you know, the fear of this virus. And some of them are absolutely unnecessary. These like seemingly perfect parents on Instagram. So our buttons, everyone's buttons are just bigger and more sensitive than they usually are. And many of us have lost access to the time and the space we need to calm those buttons down. And so what I say to parents, and this is one of my main coping skills that increases, um, trigger resilience, we could call it, is is the one thing that hopefully we all have access to that really helps is self-compassion. And we can talk about that for a minute if you'd like. Absolutely. So, and and just as a fun piece of information for listeners that you and I were connected through Susan Pollack, who came on to talk about compassion, self-compassion for parents. So this is such an important topic and one that uh, sort of a, a concept that I've been coming back to again and again and again under quarantine. So can you walk us through a little bit about how we can embody or, or sort of enact self-compassion while we're under lockdown with our kids? Absolutely. There is a, a, a huge body of research. And and for people who are interested in this, I would really recommend Susan Pollack's book, Self-Compassion for Parents. It's terrific. Uh, there's a significant body of research supporting uh, the idea that self-compassion is a powerful way to change behavior. And so if you're looking to change um, a difficult behavior, like get rid of one or start a new one, start a new habit, um, having compassion for yourself in the process will actually make it easier. And I'll I'll give you the example from my own life. It used to be that when I would lose my temper with my children, I would really beat myself up about it. I would think some pretty horrible thoughts like, I'm a bad mother, I'm screwing them up, why can't I get this right? Everybody else is getting it right and I'm the only one who can't do it. Like, that feels awful. So then, you know, all of my buttons would if they weren't already completely lit up, those thoughts are absolutely triggers. And I would feel so ashamed. And then my children would come along and because I'm still triggered, I would lose it with them again. Right. So it totally didn't work. So then I learned about self-compassion, which is um, it's based on the work of uh, Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer, uh, two researchers in Texas and in Massachusetts. Um, And they really look at three components of self-compassion. The first one is mindfulness, which is just this attitude of, noticing what's happening for us in this moment and not judging it, just kind of noticing, oh, I'm losing my temper with my kids. Oh, that's happening. Okay. Rather than, you know, jumping into the shame spiral. So the first part is mindfulness. The second part is what we call common humanity. And it's just reminding yourself that you are not alone. So just saying to yourself, hey, this is a really hard time. And literally every parent is struggling and I'm having a very human reaction to a hard situation, I don't know that I feel like I can breathe a little bit when I remember that, right? I don't feel so alone and isolated and ashamed. Yeah. And then the third piece is really kind self-talk, finding a way to speak to yourself the way that you would speak to your best friend who was having a hard time, right? I would not call it my best friend or if she called me to complain about a difficult moment, I would not say, yeah, you're a terrible parent. You're really screwing these kids up. Like I would never say that to her, right? So why would I say it to myself? And what I find is that learning to speak the language of self-compassion is like learning to speak a brand new language. The first time you try to think these thoughts, like I couldn't come up with the words and I was sort of tripping over them and I didn't know what it meant, how to do it. I just, I couldn't do it. And then I I practiced more and I spent more time with other parents who spoke to me with compassion. They spoke to me with the language I was trying to learn. And now when I lose it with my children, and this is after honestly years of practice, yell, um, the thoughts that come to my mind are, wow, this is a really hard day. It's hard for all of us. It's okay that it's hard. 
What do I need? What do my kids need? What do we need together to get through the rest of this day? And sometimes the answer is, I got to go to the bathroom. I haven't gone to the bathroom all day and it's really hard to stay sane when you need to pee, right? Sometimes the answer is, oh, I forgot to give my daughter a snack and her blood sugar has tanked and she's super cranky. And sometimes the answer is, I have no idea what's going on here. I am completely tapped out. I'm going to put them in front of a TV show so I can stare at the wall and breathe for a few minutes. Yeah. So all of that, if you if you listen to the difference between that kind of moment versus when I was really beating myself up internally, I can bring myself off this triggered place by having compassion, by remembering that we're all struggling, that this is a really hard time for all of us. And it, it you know, it's, it's just hard and that's okay. Yeah. It doesn't feel okay, but it is. Yeah, it, it feels it feels rotten, but it there is something so useful when all else fails to be able to turn to self-compassion because that is always, always, always something that we have available to us where we might not have some of the other things available. I mean, you walk through a ton of different really, and, and I want to talk about some of them, a ton of great ideas for how to reduce the, the brightness and the pushability of our red buttons. But again, because this pandemic is just so intense in terms of what is expected of us as parents and, and sort of how so many of our support structures have been just completely evaporated, that self-compassion really is something we can turn to. So we'll definitely link to the self-compassion episode that I did with Susan, but I, I definitely do recommend her book as well. And you, you talk a lot about it in your book too, in terms of how to apply it. Some of the other things that I will mention too, in terms of reducing the pushability of our buttons, um, relates a little bit to this question of like, what can we do, right? This question that y- you ask yourself when you're using that self-kind talk of what would be helpful. And some of the things that would be helpful are things, you know, that in general, especially when we make them regular practices, do help our buttons become less pushable. And those are things like, getting regular sleep. I will say actually that is one of my huge triggers and I notice it. This is sort of, you know, my my self-disclosure of like when I am most likely to lose it with my kids, it's at night because I'm just tired, especially now after I've spent a whole day, I haven't had a break. I'm frustrated because I haven't had time to get my work done. I've just had people talking at me and needing me all the time and I that is when I feel the most tapped. And it's always when my three-year-old <laughs> decides to ask me for like 12 different things. Can I have a glass of water? Can I have one more story? Can I have one more hug? And there's nothing inappropriate about what he's doing, but I just can feel myself about to lose it with him. And and I do think um, you know it is useful to sort of catch it early and develop practices around it. But I wonder if you can talk about what are some of the practices that are most helpful for you, either in this pandemic or outside of it, that help you keep your buttons less pushable? Absolutely. And um, what I will say is, as I go through some of these, these aren't new, right? I didn't come up with anything brilliant that nobody's ever heard of before. But I really want parents to start thinking of these not only as sort of general self-care, but as being directly related to our ability to stay calm with our kids, right? So these are these are all about not losing your temper with your children. For me, as I write about in the book, sleep is a huge one. I mean, what they say is about 30% of the population can function reasonably well without sleep. About 30% or so, you know, they fall apart maybe a little bit, but they can do okay. And about 30% of folks really epically fall apart when they're tired. And my husband, thank God, is in that first 30%. He can do reasonably well on little sleep. I am in that latter 30% where I just absolutely fall apart without sleep. So I just know that about myself, right? So sleep is one of them. And it's one that I've really had to stay focused on during the pandemic because it's so tempting to be like, I'm just going to stay up, you know, and screw around on my computer. I'll say from from a personal point of view, because there's so many demands on the parenting front, doing my work has to happen when the kids either are asleep or or otherwise occupied, which is so rare these days. And so it is tempting for me to wake up early or to stay up late to get anything productive done, which of course just kills my sleep. It, it, it feels like whack-a-mole. <laughs> it really feels like I'm playing whack-a-mole with, with you know, all the things that are on my to-do list. Yes. No. And one of the things I will say, just to do a little sidetrack here, is I think that For some parents, they're unemployed or underemployed right now, and that's a stressor. And Mm. for parents who are still employed and trying to manage their kids, 
One of the problems that most of us are facing is that it's harder to concentrate and focus and get work done. And that doesn't, it's not because there's anything wrong with us. It's because that is a natural response of our brain and body when we are under a constant threat and constant stress. So again, Yael, I would just encourage you and all of our listeners, you're not going to be as productive right now. I am certainly not. And we just have to accept that. It's just, it's part of the deal and it stinks. And that's where the compassion comes in. But I agree with you. And I've, the, the main change I have made that helps me get to bed on time is I brush my teeth when my children brush their teeth. So I do all the things when the girls get ready for bed, I get on my pajamas and I brush my teeth and I wash my face and I do the things because an hour and a half or two hours later, when I'm on the couch and it's time for me to go to bed, it feels so much easier to do it. If I'm like, Oh, I'm already ready for bed because by the time I'm so tired, brushing my teeth just feels insurmountable. So sleep is definitely an important practice. Um, We talked about self-compassion. Support is another really important practice. And of course, right now, many of us can't access the people who are such an important part of our support. So one practice I've embraced is every day I take a walk and talk with a friend. And what that means is we set an appointment together and I'll go out for a walk and I put on my headphones and I put on my phone and we have a phone call while we're walking. So it's become a really lovely way. And sometimes it's a friend who I usually walk with in person. Sometimes it's my sister across the country, but it's become a great way to stay connected, to have a conversation with somebody who's not in my family and to get some exercise at the same time. So I started to feel really excited about my walks because I know that I'm going to connect with a friend. So I try to schedule those with friends and that's been a great way to um, keep up with support. My family members, a bunch of my cousins from across the country and our kids and I, we all played charades on Zoom the other night and it worked remarkably well. Like I was surprised at how well it worked. And so I think people really are finding creative ways to stay connected, but I would really, one of the rules we have in our house is that um, at least Monday through Friday, everybody in the family needs to have a conversation with somebody not in the house. Oh, I like that. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, Can I actually um, ask you to talk a little bit about how you define different kinds of social support in your book? There's three different kinds. And I think it's actually especially useful now that in some ways our social support has really been damaged or, I guess, restricted by this pandemic and all the limitations that come along with it. But this idea that we have our pro team, your crew and your peeps. Yeah, Yeah, I came up with these sort of silly phrases. But yeah, look, I love it. There's different kinds of support, right? So I think of our pro team as the professionals in our life that we pay for access to their expertise. So whether this is a um, pediatrician, an occupational therapist, a psychologist, um, the teachers at our kids' school who we don't, well, I guess we do pay through taxes, but um, anybody that we are in relationship with because of their expertise, that's our pro team, right? So that's one. Um, The next is the folks I think of as our crew. These are neighbors. These are other parents at our kids' school. These are soccer parents. This is sort of the people in our lives that maybe we're not best friends with, but we're friendly with and we can help each other out. You can drop off a meal at their house if they're sick. You can share a carpool. You know, you can send them the text and be like, what was the assignment? What's my kid supposed to be doing? Like, whatever it is, this is sort of the folks that are in our social world now that really do. We can make each other's lives much easier, but it's not like we're besties. And that's okay. And then I think of our peeps as like, you know, you're really close friends who you can send those like text messages out of the blue and or they always respond or they send you the snarky gif or they're the ones I, I think of these people. So my husband defines them as the people that he can show up at their house in Crocs because he thinks Crocs are like the most casual footwear that he would never wear anywhere. So he's like, if I can come to your house in my Crocs, we're totally close friends. I think of them as the people that I don't need to clean my house for. Like when you come over, you're going to see us in our natural habitat. And so I think it's just really useful. Like for many of us, we have lost access to our pro team, right? I just canceled my kid's annual appointment. She doesn't need vaccinations this year. She's healthy. We'll go to the doctor when she needs to be seen, right? Um, So that's, but that's, 
you know, our pediatrician, I've known her since my kids were born. She's a huge source of support in my life. And I'm not going to see her. That's okay. It's not the end of the world. But, you know, if you have a child who has physical therapy or occupational therapy or mental health therapy, and you can't access those people, that's a big part of your the support of your family, right? And so I would say to the extent that you can connect with them virtually, or really make sure you're engaging with other sources of support, it's really important. Because the truth is, we cannot do this alone. It's We weren't wired to do it alone. And we can't. And and I do think that the way that we can access those sources of support now is so different than it was before the quarantine. But we, you know, there are still ways to connect with people, you know, whether it's through Zoom or through email or through a phone call or gosh, even through snail mail, because it's kind of fun to run, write letters. You feel really Absolutely. connected to people. And for me, I think thinking of it that way just helps to remind me of all the different sources of support that I do have and and how with a with the perspective shift in what is possible right now that I can really appreciate the different kinds of connections. Absolutely. And I will, I will say that I think one of the challenges of this time is that it used to be that a lot of these supports just sort of fell into the course of our day. Like we just had the appointments, it wasn't a big deal, or we would see these parents when we were doing drop-off or pick-up at school or on the side of the soccer field. And all of a sudden, all those ways in which we would kind of casually interact with our support networks have disappeared. And so it has to become a much more intentional thing. And it's just hard because we're already doing all the things. Yeah, and another thing to do, yeah, for sure. And I would just say, this is one of them. And you don't have to do with all the people. Like I'm not calling up my pediatrician and being like, Hey, I miss you. Even though if she hears this, I do miss you. Um, but there are people in my life that I'm like, okay, it makes me really happy to talk to my sister several times a week. So I am making the point to call her. And again, it does feel like it has to be really intentional to check in with folks, but it's Mm -hmm. worth it. And so I think it's, it's a, it's a place to put our energy that matters and that will help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, And I wonder if we can talk about one other area that I think is so relevant right now in terms of how to, again, make those buttons less pushable, which is multitasking, because I think it's, again, one of those things that we, in general, actually, we have to be really intentional about not multitasking. But you have, you talk very directly that there's no, actually no such thing as multitasking, right? Because we can't really pay full attention to multiple things at the same time. It's just not the way that our brains work. But because there's so many demands, it is so tempting right now to be doing like 8 million things at once. Again, I mean, I sort of go back to it from like a working parent perspective that I'm like, oh, if my kids are like five minutes on, you know, some assignment for school, I'll just, you know, rip off an email. But of course, it it goes badly every time and stresses me out. But to stop doing it is so challenging. So I wonder if you can talk us through why multitasking is so likely to make our buttons redder and more pushable and and what we can do about that, especially now. Yeah. So multitasking is a huge trigger. And for folks in our generation, that's a big problem because we were raised to believe that multitasking was a desirable skill that we should practice and get better at. And I don't know about you, but for a long time, every job description I ever read said ability to multitask required. Well, it might as well say ability to ride in on a golden unicorn required because that's just about as likely. Like the truth is we do a thing called task switching where our brain jumps back and forth between the various tasks. And the problem with this is that often one part of our brain might make the leap before another part or our brain might catch up, but then our body doesn't. And all of a sudden our brain and our body are literally doing two different things, which we're not actually very good at. And so we get stressed. And I define stress as the thought, belief, or perception that we can't handle what's going on. Now, sometimes it's true. We can't handle it. And when that happens, we need to like slow down and reach out to support systems and do all the things that we do in times of crisis, like right now. But sometimes we actually can handle each of the things going on in our lives. We just can't handle that in that moment. So the perfect example is in the evenings. This is, well... Now it's like all the time because kids are home all the time. But it used to be in the evenings, you know, I'd be trying to cook dinner, which meant I'm almost inevitably standing at the stove stirring a pot of noodles. I've got one kid at the table asking me about spelling words. I've got another kid in the bathroom yelling for me to wipe her tushy. Um, My phone is buzzing because all my friends are like, this is so annoying. Um, And my brain all of a sudden, you know, I don't know where my brain is. It's thinking about like an ex-boyfriend or something I said on the playground I shouldn't have said. Like, where's my brain going? I don't know. So in that moment... 
I, I like I think I can't handle it because I, I can't do all those things at once. And so then I get one more request from a kid or one more text message comes through and I just lose it and I snap because I'm stressed and my nervous system is lit up like warning, warning, alert, and then I lose it. So the o- other option is to do what I call single tasking, which is to do one thing at a time, to have our brain and our body focused on the same thing, just that one thing at a time. Now, I'm not saying we can only ever single task and never ever multitask. I don't think that's necessary. I just want parents to start realizing that multitasking is a stressor that can lead directly to loss of temper and that the other option is to single task. And when I really want people to think about doing one thing at a time is if they're already feeling strong emotions or they're stressed out, that's a great time to slow down, do just one thing. If, um, if there are dire consequences to any mistakes. So that's the reason we don't want people to talk on the phone while they're driving in the car, because if you get distracted and screw up, it could be real, real bad. Right. But you know, if I'm listening to an audiobook while I sort laundry, I don't know. I might miss part of the audiobook. I might throw one kid's socks in the other kid's bin, but it doesn't really matter. Um, so if it's a time when you might like, if you're trying to multitask, yell, like, you know, maybe shoot off a professional email while you're sort of managing your kid's homework and you send the email to the wrong person or you write the wrong numbers in the email, like that could potentially be pretty bad. Right. So that's not a great time to try to do that. Um, and then the third time when it's really not great to try to multitask is when we're with our kids. Uh, but the problem is we're with our kids all the time. So, um, but my kids have gotten used to, I will say to them, uh, so now, you know, if I'm standing at the stove, stirring the noodles and they come over and they want something, I'll say, Hey kiddo, I'm cooking dinner. I'll be with you in just a minute. And then, you know, you might have to say that 18 times, but eventually they will get the picture. And the trick is you have to remember to go back over to your kid when dinner is on the table or whatever and say, what was it you need me to talk to me about? Um, but the best advice I ever saw, parenting advice, was an article in the New York Times many years ago by Catherine Newman. And the idea was either pay attention to your kids or don't. Like, and, you know, yeah, just like you, I used to do the like back and forth of, oh, I'm going to play a game with you while I fold the laundry. And I would just it, like, I'm going to check my email real quick while we're doing playing Lego. It doesn't work. And so now what I'll do is I'll say, look, we can play for 20 minutes or half an hour. And then I'm going to go do work for half an hour and I cannot help you during that time. And I realize this is easier with older kids. My kids are nine and 11. I was just going to say, it's much harder with my three-year-old than it is with my older two. Look, I really think it's virtually impossible with a three-year-old. You might get lucky and they can get engaged in some activity. I I really don't know. I I don't have any great solutions for parents who are trying to work from home with toddlers and preschoolers. Honestly, I think it's all about shifting expectations and compassion because they're just, I can say no, but he just whines at me constantly. And I know a lot of parents with young kids are experiencing the same thing that, you know, it feels like there should be a solution, but even a screen doesn't hold the attention of really young ones for very long. And it, it, it's just not feasible to do anything other than parent with some level of attention to it. That's right. And, and to remember that he's triggered too. Right. Like this is scary and confusing for three-year-olds. And again, all I have to offer folks in those situations is a whole lot of compassion, mm-hmm. really, because it's such a hard time. Yeah. Um, so I just encourage parents to think of single tasking. Again, this is sort of having your, your brain and your body doing the same thing at the same time and just one thing. I encourage parents to think of that as as yet another like tool or strategy they can use to stay calm in parenting situations. Yeah. I love that. And so let's, let's um, just with the remaining time that we have, let's talk a little bit about what to do when we are ready to explode. Because what we've been talking about is all about making the buttons less pushable. But invariably, each of us is going to hit a point where we're just about ready to lose our minds. Absolutely. And, and there are really awesome, practical, on-the-ground strategies that you offer in your book. So can you walk us through what do you do? What do we do? Um, So I have this sort of three-step strategy. Uh, It's called notice, pause, and do literally anything else. So the first step is really crucial. And it sounds simple, but it's not easy. And when you start practicing it, um, 
there are times when it's not going to happen for you. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that anyone is a terrible parent. It just means this is a new practice and we need some time to get better at it. But the first step is to notice that you are either about to lose it or that you are losing it. And it may be hard to believe that we could be yelling at our kids and not be aware of it, but that's how the human brain works. That when we're yelling, the noticing part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex goes offline and the limbic system, which is this very emotional fight or flight part of our brain, that's running the show. So it's a practice to be able to notice when you're about to lose it. And what I encourage parents to do is look for their red flags, look for your tells, as we might say. Um, And these are the like the sort of signals that your body and mind are giving you that you're about to lose it. So for me, what are my tells? My shoulders go up to my ears. And you may think that I would notice when I'm walking around with my shoulders up by my ears, but I can not notice that I can be completely unaware of it. Um, I start snipping at my daughters. I I get at them with the one word answers. Yeah, fine. Okay, fine. All right. All right. When I hear my voice and my words doing that, that's a red flag. And the third one uh, is that I start fantasizing about the aisles of Staples, office (laughs) supply stores. I just want, I love office supply stores. I love notebooks and pens. And, you know, I could be fantasizing about a beach somewhere, but for some reason, my brain always goes to Staples. And so when I notice myself and no, I'm not getting paid by them, although I would be willing to take that money, it's fine. But when I notice myself being like, oh my gosh, if I could just drive down to Staples, that is a good sign that I'm about to lose it. So the first step is to just notice your tells, whatever it is, is your stomach getting tight or your eyebrows furrowing? Like, where does your mind and your body go when you when your buttons are like being pushed too much? Yeah. When you notice this, all I want you to do is pause. Just put a pin in it. Whatever is happening, just take a beat. You know, and the reason I want you to pause is because that is a very powerful way to tell your body that the threat is not real. Because if the threat was real, you wouldn't be pausing. You'd be fighting the tiger, running away from it, right? So when you just shut your mouth, step away from it, just whatever it looks like for you to pause, do that. And then do literally anything else. So if you are a kind of person that reciting a prayer or a mantra or counting to 10 is going to calm you down, that's great. If you need to go stare out the window, you do that. If you want to put your hands on the, you know, the kitchen counter, a nice, cool, hard surface, that will help calm you down. But if you're the kind of person that has all this energy in your body because your nervous system is jacked up for this fight or flight response, then get that energy out. Jump up and down. You know, if you can run around the house, if you can run up and down the stairs, we have sort of this long wooden hallway. I'll sometimes slide up and down the hallway in my socks. Sometimes I will open my mouth to yell and I will literally end up clucking like a chicken. I have this energy that this sound needs to come out and I just, I got to get the sound out and clucking like a chicken is really funny and it's not stressful. It doesn't feel toxic or dangerous to the kids. Um, But whatever you need to do to sort of get the energy out to kind of do a reset. The one thing I don't generally recommend is going in the other room and either screaming or hitting. And the reason I don't recommend that is because no matter what we do, we're always practicing something even if it's something we don't want to get better at. And when we go in the other room and hit or punch a pillow or scream into the wall or whatever, we're actually practicing doing that more. Um, Having said that, if that's the best you can do, if you're like, Carla, I got to go and punch my pillow, then just go do it. You know, better that than a kid, right? Obviously. So, um, but anything you need to do that is going to calm you down, Just do that. Now, I would also recommend, again, some parents go straight for their phones. I am certainly guilty of this at times, but we sort of automatically reach for our phones as a way to calm down. And even under the best of circumstances, your phone can be a major trigger because you may see some terrible news or something on Instagram that triggers you. And I would argue that right now is really not the best of circumstances. And so to open your phone and see that someone has passed away from this horrible illness or to see the latest news about something gone wrong and there's so many things going wrong, that's going to trigger you more. I actually really recommend writing it down because when we're all emotionally activated, it's not the time that we're going to come up with great ideas. So write it down for yourself. Like here are are four things that I can try when I'm feeling really, you know, about to lose it with my kids and, and here are some healthier ways to respond. Absolutely. And I would say the trick is to do what works for you right? That what, what is going to come most naturally to you in that moment? 
um, is going to be the easiest to access. So I end up making ridiculous noises because for some reason that works for me. Um, but again, if you need to recite a prayer, count to 10 or do 10 push ups, whatever it is, that's okay. Yeah. And then you also have a small, uh, a piece in your book that is terrific that talks about sort of what do you do after the bleep storm has passed. And, and it's sort of like this, I think of it as a mantra, although I'm not sure you're intending it that way, but it's rupture, recover and repeat. Because the reality is we are from time to time going to behave in ways that we're not particularly proud of with our kids. And actually it's a really useful, healthy um, relationship strategy to kind of teach your kids. Like, you know, sometimes things go wrong and, and part of the relationship, you know, ruptures a little bit, but we can recover and repair with our kids. And, and that that is something, a skill that's actually quite useful for them to know how to do. And that's actually, I think a really useful reframe that when you do lose it with your kids, all is not lost. They are not broken. You've actually taught them something valuable and it will be especially valuable if you teach them how to recover skillfully. Yeah. And I, I can't take credit for the rupture, repair, repeat, um, idea. I read it in other parenting books. I mean, I've heard it in the parenting world, but I think it's really useful for parents to remember that this is the nature of a healthy parent-child relationship is we have these relational ruptures, these moments when we fail them and they frustrate us and buttons get pushed and people lose their temper. And the really important thing is that we need to take the steps to repair the relationship and then get ready for it to happen all over again. Um, So here's how I think about that repair phase when we're going to go reconnect with our kids. First, we have to get ourselves calmed down and not pretending to be calmed down. We really have to get calm because if we go back to our children to try to repair things and we're still triggered, if they, you know, are mad at us or still behaving poorly or don't, you know, properly apologize, we are likely to lose it with them again. And that's not what we want. So first, get yourself calm, legit calm, chill out, go do what you need to do. And then go to your child and apologize. And I know that some parents feel like they shouldn't apologize because it's going to undermine their authority or, you know, the child will be absolved for whatever button pushing they did. And I don't think that's true. I think that when we apologize to our children, we are modeling a behavior we would like them to practice someday. Um, And at the end of the day, really the only power we have in our relationship with our children is our relationship with our children. So if we don't take care of that connection, we got nothing really. And so then you want to say to your kid, you know, apologize for your behavior. Say, I'm really sorry I yelled at you. I was feeling stressed and overwhelmed and I shouldn't have yelled and I apologize. Um, A few notes I would say about the apology is one, you can apologize for your behavior You never have to apologize for your feelings, nor do your children. Look, no feeling is ever wrong. There may be some feelings that really stink, that are super unpleasant, and we don't want them, and we don't want our kids to have them, but no feeling is ever wrong. What may happen is certain behaviors may be unskillful or unhelpful. Like, you know, my daughter can be really mad at her sister. That's okay. What she can't do is throw a shoe at her sister's head. That's not okay. And so I'm trying really hard with my kids at this age, and I would encourage listeners to do the same, to make that distinction between feelings and actions. So we can apologize for our actions. Um, We might explain what happened. You know, I I was feeling stressed and frustrated because I asked you a bunch of times to put on your shoes and you didn't. And then we can make a plan for going forward. Hey, for the rest of the day, can we make a plan on how we're going to get your shoes on? Because we still need to leave the house two more times today. I would not promise that you're never going to lose your temper again, because we all know that's not true. So don't make a promise, you know, that you can't keep. And also uh, try to, you know, not do the, well, you should have put your shoes on. And the reason I lost my temper is because you didn't put your shoes on. No, the reason you lost your temper is because you were triggered, right? So, you know, you can make a plan with your child. You can have a conversation with them about their behavior and their role in it. But if you're blaming them for your behavior, then you're still triggered and you need to go calm down. So we apologize to our children and then we move on. And I think that point of taking care of yourself and making sure that you're calmed down and that you can repair and learn from it and in a way teach your child that you're learning from it. And again, that's such great modeling um, for them because they too are going to lose their minds at their friends, at their siblings, and, you know, eventually, hopefully at their own kids. And so you're teaching them, you know, how to do that skillfully and how to sort of, um, you know, come back from a messy interpersonal experience. And and that is a part of what relationships involve. So there's no getting around that. Absolutely. 
So thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this wisdom, especially at a time when I think so many of us parents are really in need of some guidance. So um, I just have to make a huge plug for this book. I, I think I know myself, I'm, I'm pretty tapped out and I can't read many things right now. Definitely not very de- cognitively demanding things. But this is one of those amazing books where you will learn so much, but it's such a fun, funny, <laughs> compassionate, like relatable read. So I, I, even though you're overwhelmed, I actually really do recommend parents who are struggling, pick this up. It's, it's a terrific book. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. So thank, oh, you, thank you so, you so much, much for joining us today. I had a wonderful time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.